What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Black Bolt. The Ukraine-Russia conflict. If you're like me since the beginning, you feel like it's been an illegal war of Russian aggression. If you're like me, um, you, you, do, you do have a, a, a really big kind of soft spot for Ukrainian civilians who seem to have come together in a, in a wave of patriotism I don't know if I've ever seen in my lifetime um, fighting for their country. Um, also, just as, a, as an aside here, I, I was speaking to Seymour Hirsch earlier on today. Uh, I interviewed him for Blackballed this morning. And one thing that um, I'm going to talk to my guests about today as well is that there seems to be, because there is like a definitive good guy and a definitive bad guy in this war, a tendency to brand those who have any criticisms for the Ukrainian side as being damaging to the war effort or something like that. So I want to sort some of that out first. But the big story is something that I've been reading about for the last couple of weeks. This is a headline. Um, I think it's from NPR, but it's at least 6,000 Ukrainian children taken to Russian territory since beginning of war, many put in re-education camps. The long and the short of it is there is a allegation out there that the Russians, um, through what they describe as almost like charitable organizations to help people or children that are uh, stricken and impacted by the war, that is their uh, alleged cover story. But what people say is really happening is that Russia is kidnapping Ukrainian children and then putting them in the adoption system inside Russia. So it's a really kind of crazy story. And we are going to see if we can do our best to he is uh, well, basically a Ukrainian activist, I guess. We've been covering the war since 2014 when the Russians annexed Crimea. And his name is Mike Makai. Mike, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Good. Um, we were talking a little bit off the show. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that other than the fact that you're a computer consultant, but your Twitter personality and the things that you've been doing over the last nine, ten years on Twitter has given you quite a remarkable following. But what, did it, what is it exactly that you do and what role have you sort of undertaken since, uh, let's just say, February 2022? Okay, so if we're going to start there. Uh, well, we'll start, been, where you would start wherever you'd like to start. No, I'll, I'll start there. I've been okay. active in Ukraine for a long time, let's say since soon after the renewal of independence in 1991. And in 2022, um, a year ago, uh, in a couple of days, uh, this was the start of the broad offensive uh, by Russia. And what they're doing was extending the invasion that they had started nine years ago. In fact, nine years ago mm. today is when that started uh, with the invasion into the southern peninsula of Ukraine, into Crimea, and that was extended to Donbass. So in when the broad offensive started a year ago, I was doing what I was always doing, which was reporting the news as Ukrainians were seeing it, but in English and doing it on Twitter. And the modest following that I had there just started to grow because more and more people were seeing it from the mainstream uh, media uh, 
and of course had been getting Russian propaganda all along. And for many people, this was new to say, oh, well, this is, this is a different perspective. And I was just reflecting uh, what I have always done, which was the Ukrainian perspective on events in Ukraine. That's right. And so this latest story, um, th this is another one of those stories. I'm finding a lot of the news uh, difficult sometimes to decipher. Um, there are many reasons why. One is that um, there, there's no, um, it's no surprise that Russia has been on a disinformation campaign since this uh, war began. And, and that is sort of like um, par for the course for Russia. But also on the, on, on the other side, sometimes it just feels like it is pro-Ukraine that if, if something ever happened that was like negative inside the Ukrainian government, we would never know about it because all hands would be on deck to make sure damaging information didn't get out because it might damage the country. And, and, and I mean, that's not something that I think that you're responsible for, obviously, but it, it, I do sort of see that. So when I see stories like the, um, the Russia kidnapping 6,000 Ukrainian kids, I want to have someone like yourself on so that I can ask you what the receipts are um what, what what is the evidence for this and um and if we can enlighten my audience to sort of let them know yes this is true and this is why can you can you bring us down that path a little bit sure and you're right we are just bombarded with information and disinformation and it's very difficult to put this into context mm -hmm. um the context i put the kidnapping of ukrainian children in is to understand the real root causes of the war. Uh, for example, this was expressed in a manifesto that Putin put out a year before, basically announcing his plans. Uh, he called it on the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people. And I wrote at the time that this was comparable to Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler, uh, filled with historical inaccuracies but showing the perspective that guides this malice, this aggression by Russians. So I really have very little time for geopolitical people and things like that. This is the heart of it. And the heart of it is to annihilate the Ukrainian nation, to make it cease to be a fact of history, that Ukrainian is not a language, that Ukrainian is not an identity, that there, there is a subset, a subculture, and a lower culture, part of greater Russia. And that uh, people who stand up with a, for a pure pro-Ukrainian position or for the independence of Ukraine, they're just not just wrong from the Russian point of view, but they are insane and they're not even human. So this is the groundwork for genocide, of course, that the, the other in this case, Ukrainians, are, in fact, they're just a part of us, and they think they're distinct. They're, in fact, not even human. And that's the groundwork for all of this. And that's what I see the uh, filtration camp system, the systematic kidnapping. Um, you're right, under a veneer of humanitarian and health concerns and stuff like this, um, the the destruction, the targeting and destruction of civilian objects as opposed to the military, which is the overwhelming emphasis of the Russian forces. If we put it in the context of genocide, the pieces fall into place. They're incidents of a haphazard, shambolic, but nevertheless systematic genocide of the Ukrainian people by Russians. 
Okay. Genocide's a big word. So what can you give me some of the concrete evidence of that? So the concrete evidence of is so it it starts with um what we now call disinformation, um, which has been going on for a very, very long time. Uh the uh the lowering uh, in, in the estimation of people of the other, in this case, Ukrainians. And by the way, I also want to include in this the Crimean Tatar people, who are the uh, autochthonous people of uh, the southern peninsula of Ukraine. They are also a major part of this. And so, and also part of the context that gives substance to this is the history of this. There is long-standing genocide by Russians against these peoples, against Ukrainians and the Crimean Tatars. For example, in the 20th century, one of the most notable genocides was the Holodomor, the forced famine genocide of 1932-1933. For the Crimean Tatars, it was the deportation of the Crimean Tatars in 1944. And these were horrific events um, with the aim of erasing the historical identity, the character of uh, these people. Um, and so it's continuous. I see it as part of generations. And so when I see things like kidnapping of children, it, it, it fits the pattern, it fits the sensibility. It is the actually the imperial mission of Russia. Okay. Um, genocide, when people hear that word, they think um, they want to kill every Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, the, most people are thinking about the Holocaust, which uh, was systematic mass murder. And, but that is, that is an important element, and, but it is, it is a, an element in a context where the overall theme is to eliminate a identifiable group of people as a separate collective, as a historical fact. Mm. And so there is more to it than just that. So um, it's sort of like, like we, over here, uh, um, we had, uh, a re uh, um, the reconciliation process that we went through with uh, with our indigenous with indigenous Canadians, you remember we had, and then um, it was decided. Uh, I guess the committee decided, and then our, our prime minister agreed that there was a cultural genocide taking right. place. Is that sort of what you're talking about? A more of a cultural genocide where you erase the identities of people, but not necessarily kill them all. Is that sort of the idea? Uh, yes, and because when you think about it, technologically, it's more efficient if you think from this evil point of view it is difficult to kill huge large amounts of people but if you erase them as what offends you as their identity for example if assimilation of uh, the autochthonous people of canada had somehow completed they would have been erased as what they were wouldn't they mm, they would yes. have been assimilated and that was the whole point about the residential school systems and part of that was for example not taking care taking out uh national uh, you know, cultural characteristics, language, and so on. We know languages are endangered, but we're not eradicated. And this is what's going on in Ukraine. The eradication of language, of culture, of history, which is their own. Um, this is actually a part of it. And it's an important part of genocide. And killing is a part of it. The fact that the Russians are much less efficient at it than the Germans were with the Holocaust doesn't take away the fact that it is systematic genocide. Okay, so um, let's get to the the kidnapping children because th this is um, this is one of those stories where I'm just like I'm completely floored, and I, I 
it's difficult to sort of find specifics, but I'm going to ask you, what is the pattern here? Is it um, the, 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 the sort of onslaught bombing of civilian areas and then when uh, the Russian troops go in, they take surviving children and then put and then bring them and deport them is what they're calling it because they take them from occupied areas and deport them to Russia. And then they start an adoption process so that Russian parents can adopt these kids. Is that basically it? Yeah, but it's part of a, a broader concept. So let's uh, okay. this first came to large attention uh, in Mariupol, uh, a city in Donetsk region on the Sea of Azov, and uh, it was very remarkable how it held on for uh, weeks and months, and then finally uh, succumbed to the Russian invaders. And the kidnapping of children is part of a larger effort of what the Russians themselves describe as filtration camps. Um, they're equivalent of uh, concentration camps. And they are various facilities where uh, captive Ukrainians, people who live, this is their home, are assessed and this is this is everybody so it's not just children and they're so everyone who comes under the power of the russian invaders is assessed for a pro-ukrainian position so they're they're uh, in particular they're looking for people who um have been activists for example euromaidan activists from 2014 uh people who are veterans of the uh, anti-terrorist operation and the joint forces operation which is how uh, the Ukrainian Armed Forces conducted the war from 2014 to 2022. Uh, um, they're looking for these veterans, any pro-Ukrainians, um, civic activists, and so on. And these are, these are the top of the enemies list. And children come into their power uh, accordingly. So, for example, some are actual orphans in orphanages. Well, these institutions are abolished, and they're now Russian orphans. But also, as happens in war, children are separ separated from their parents. And the Russians take this as an excuse for, oh, they've been abandoned by their parents, ignoring mm -hmm. the fact that they caused the conditions for them to be separated from their parents. And they're treated as orphans as well. Also, these Ukrainians with a pro-Ukrainian position are uh, criminals, uh, uh, declared unfit parents, and they have the parental authority taken for, uh, from them. And so therefore, their children are orphans. So. You know, the separation of war, actual orphans, and uh, parents who have been criminalized uh, produces a large number of children who fall under this category of orphans, uh, to use the Russian terminology. And through the system of filtration camps, it's tied in with the Ministry of Health with Ukraine because they're, they're also selecting for good health. So of all these children, Ukrainians in good health, are whisked away in onto the territory of the Russian Federation, so they're stolen from their homes, um, and there is a system to have them adopted um, with uh, pro-Putin regime uh, families uh, in Russia, some as far away as the Far East, uh, almost as far as Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean coast. Uh, they have their language taken away. They're not allowed to speak Ukrainian. Of course, they're no longer educated in Ukrainian. Um, and um, this is a way to erase Ukrainian identity. So it's systematic. There's estimated to be over 40 of these filtration camps of various uh, sizes. I mean, some could be just offices in captured administration buildings, hmm. uh, and some are much more extensive. And 
It's chaotic, it's disorganized, but it is a system of genocide. Is there, are there any reports or stories of parents who were able, successfully able to get their kids back that were, that have been put in this system? Yes, there's some remarkable stories. So for example, the Ukrainian government has um, kind of have a, a policy where they say, well, how can they, how can they escape? Um, I mean, they have their Ukrainian their identity documents stolen from them uh, and so on. And the Ukrainian government says, okay, well, you might have to just get a Russian passport and play around with this, uh, play, play with this. And there have been cases of uh, children, um, you know, with, with, with help, with sponsors, with help getting out as Russians and then making their way back to their parents uh, in Ukraine. They're rare, remarkable stories of just harrowing experiences, um, but they certainly inspire people that there, there is hope. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. It's, it's, it's not a story that I've ever really heard before. You know, like usually the spoils of war, I know that's an awful phrase, is is where, um, you know, the one side, you know, they, they don't normally collect children to then give away to, to Russian families. Usually they'll just, you know, either they, they just abandon the children after they, they decimate a village or a town or something, or they kill them or, you know, with as part of the bombardment. But I've never heard of this before. Is, is this something that um, that you've even encountered in war before? Because usually it's a lot more violent or just a lot more neglect when it comes to kids. Yeah, I, I totally appreciate that. We've never heard that before. And that's because of our point of view. What do we think about as normal for war? Um, our consciousness goes back, let's say, really to the beginning of the 20th century. You know, we think, you know, the First World War and trench warfare, and this is terrible. And we think about the Second World War and mass bombing and on the Holocaust. And this is terrible. And, and then more modern wars where we focus a lot on technology and so on. And this is our awareness of things. But let's look at it from the Ukrainian point of view. Everything that's happening today is perfectly expected. If you think about what happened almost 800 years ago, when the Golden Horde of the Mongol Empire invaded Ukraine. And this is exactly what they did, um, you know, set soldiers to loot and burn and rape, uh, kidnap children, take slaves, which is what they had. I mean, th this is slavery, of course. That's what this mm. is. And that's what the uh, Mongol Empire did. This was normal for those times. And I just want to point out that what we're seeing is normal for the Russian Empire. This is not any different 
than what they did when uh, they've invaded Ukraine over the past 400 years and established serfdom and under Stalin and uh, dekulakization and the collectivization of farms and so on. It is perfectly normal from that point of view. Our, our uh, I guess, uh, attention deficit disorder is why we're so shocked about it. I mean, we should be shocked by it morally, mm. but um, Ukrainians say this and says, yeah, this is the way it is. I think um, if I may offer one reason why I think some of us uh, are, look at this and are, are shocked by it, um, e even if we believe it, is that there is a very obvious sort of vibe right now among the media, uh, most of the media, where there is an infallibility cloak that's been placed over top of anything Ukrainian. Okay. And I'm not saying, like I said, I just to preamble all this, I know that Russia is the bad actor in this and I understand that, but nonetheless, it, it, there, there is basically zero. Whenever I see a situation where there's zero criticism on one side, I start to get suspicious about things and, and, and not that there's some vast conspiracy, but it feels like the stakes seem so high in a, in what looks like more and more like a proxy war between the United States and Russia. The stakes seem so high that if you say, I don't think Zelensky should have done that photo shoot, photo shoot in, in GQ flair or whatever that was, because he looked really tone deaf. And if you say that, people are like, how dare you? How dare you? Russia's committing genocide. How dare you like say that against Zelensky? And, and that's where stories like this one with 6,000 kids being kidnapped, the reason why I think that people don't give it as much traction is because of what I just said, is because it feels like if your criticism isn't 100% directed towards Russia, then then you're you're probably not going to want to be part of the conversation, or at least you're not going to be invited to, to the next one. Do you get that vibe? I mean, I know that you're really close to the situation too, so it feels weird even asking you. But do you do you understand where I'm coming from? Well, nobody wanted to believe the stories about the concentration camps and then the death camps were true either, and stories about these were starting to come out. Uh, with convincing evidence by 1943. And but with the press largely, the Western press largely, although there were some weird Hitler allies that stayed around until like 43, 44, but for the most part, they had already spent years being criticized as the bad guys. So it didn't, so to, to, to you know, the, the comparison doesn't really work because, uh, you know, maybe some people didn't believe the scale of the camps, but certainly like the Nazis in that case were Russia. So it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, it feels kind of easy. But when, but it, maybe we can start off with that one point. I'm not saying that there's neo-Nazis in Ukraine and they're, you know, they're the real story or Don Bass was a conspiracy. I'm not saying any of that, biolabs. I don't believe in any of that shit. But what I do believe is that when I see a, a media that is just completely unwilling to criticize anything that comes out of Ukraine, it makes me wonder why that is. And, and I'm wondering if you have any insight or thoughts on that. That's all. Well, I, I think the media has been, well, let's put it this way. Um, the Russian Empire has been vastly more successful at information warfare than Nazi Germany was. Uh, Goebbels was an amateur compared to what the Russians have been able to do with their influence operations. And in a way, what I see with the media now for the last year 
is a like a recovering alcoholic. They're coming off of um, eight years since the invasion started of basically reworking the Russian narrative from uh, from the both sides of the story critical Western point of view. So, for example, instead of talking about the invasion, talking about the annexation of Crimea, which is actually one of the most trivial aspects of it. Uh, instead of talking about the Russian army in Ukraine, they talk about pro-Russian separatists in, in Eastern Ukraine, which is false. Um, so I see this as almost like yeah, a recovering alcoholic saying, wow, we got this so wrong. And there are these threads, these stories that have been there all along. So, for example, this kidnapping story, um, I was writing about this uh, by last April and mm. so on. It was well known um, as Mariupol was falling, as the, uh, you know, as it was clear that the international community, the Red Cross, was completely failing to do anything and that this filtration camp system was starting up. So, and I see this and I still see that there's this powerful influence of Russian information warfare, which is the, the number one aspect of their war. We can see their military is not the greatest, but their information war warfare is better than anything out there. The fact that, uh, for example, people are referring to this as a proxy war, which when you think about it, is uh, denying agency to Ukrainians. You see, well, Ukrainians, uh, if would I... fight, Ukrainians would fight for their country, whether the United States gave a damn or not. If, they, if they, I agree. The United States didn't give them a single weapon, Ukrainians would fight. And so I agree. A, a, a proxy war is giving this geopolitical uh, perspective on things, which actually dehumanizes the conflict. Well, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but but in any event, I think I understand your greater point. Um I actually, I spoke with John Spencer. I don't know if you know who John Spencer is, but he wrote um, the the Ukrainian civilian mi military, uh, what do you call it, brigades, I guess. Um, that all of this civilian military personnel that's, that, that volunteered, and I, I don't know if they were conscripted or not, but either way, that was one of the most patriotic um, ensembles <laughs> whatever, of, of military adventurism I have ever seen. And I talked to John Spencer, who wrote the handbook that the Ukrainian military bought to train their um, civilian forces. And and even he was like, he said two things. He said, I've never seen such amazing patriotism and passion to protect one's country than I have since being in Ukraine. But the other thing that he said is that it's certainly a proxy war. So it can be both, can it not? Well, let's take that example about uh, civilian soldiers uh, coming to, coming to for patriotic reasons uh, to defend their country, and you're referring to uh, from last year the territorial defense battalions. But Correct. the same thing happened nine years ago with the volunteer battalions that were raised. About forty uh, battalions of various size were raised to go to the front, um, and people with very little military training. This is at a time when the professional army, the armed forces of Ukraine, was estimated to have only a actual fighting force of about 5,000. Um, and large numbers of these volunteer battalions came to the cause. And by 2015, by the time of the battles of Debeltsalvi and the battles of uh, Donetsk airport had stopped the Russian invaders at the line that they were at for the, uh, for the following uh, seven years until 2022. So it is, there's a, there's a precedent 
you know, before the t territorial defense uh, battalions, there were the volunteer battalions. I was just talking about that. Mm -hmm. And and before that, um, there was uh, the OUN and UPA in the 1940s and 50s fighting the Soviets. And before that, there was the uh, Ukrainian National Republic Army of uh, 1917 to 1921. So if you if you put aside this proxy war business, this is the way Ukrainians are when they're faced with Russian invasions. They come, they defend their home. And it doesn't matter if great powers intervene or not. That the essential fact is Ukrainians defending their home. I agree. Um, I, I, I agree and I disagree. I, I think that, that, like I said, I think we agree on this. The Ukrainians have shown um, a remarkable tenacity to stand up and, sh and, and be brave and be courageous and fight against the Russian invaders. I think that you and I agree on that 100%. But the weaponry from NATO and Western nations um, and, and the fact that it's largely American, it just kind of makes it a de facto proxy war on top of the fact that the, on top of the bravery and courage of Ukrainians, doesn't it? I mean, I know you don't want to say it, but if you took away all the American and Western weaponry, it's, it's a tough go for Ukraine. <laughs> isn't it no it's a direct war it's not a proxy war and ukrainians ukraine has allies who are actually not fighting allies that's the way i see it okay well that's fair enough um what are you, what are your thoughts on the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage oh uh, it's a it's a russian special operation they, they knew it was never going to work uh, it was never going to become uh, productive. It was always a war project of the uh, Russian terrorist state to uh, basically uh, wheedle away Germany from the alliance, and it largely succeeded, um, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. So uh, this why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they just Why wouldn't they just shut off the tap? Well, the tap wasn't working. <laughs> Um, because it doesn't suit their interests. That's, that's not the Czechist way. That's not the Russian way. The Russian way is to do an operation as they did, to, to sabotage it and to cloud it in massive disinformation. So I, I spoke to Seymour Hersh this morning, and he wrote a piece that said that, the, uh, that this was an American operation. Um, the piece was called How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline, New York Times called it a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. Um, he says that the bombs were planted during a NATO military exercise and then detonated by a Norwegian plane who dropped a, uh, the device, that, the remote detonation device that then detonated. Um, he says his sources come from military and intelligence agencies. Is he a useful idiot then, or is he making this up? Like, why would he, why would one of the most, why would a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist put out a story like that if it wasn't true? Yes, he's a useful idiot. And what he might have done decades ago is meaningless. Okay, so what evidence is it that it's a Russian, because he, he cites his evidence um, in the form of, 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 of certainly of anonymous sources, but he's a veteran, he's been around, so I feel like, I don't feel like he's making out a whole cloth. If he's a useful idiot, he's also then all of a sudden not as wise as he used to be. What, what, where, what is the, uh, he, he cites, his, his story starts at the beginning and it has an end. And it tells you of all the details in between, um, where they got, where they got, uh, how they were able to like put the detonation device in there, everything. He's got all these details. What are the details that it was a Russian special, special op? 
well, I haven't researched this because I'm not interested. Um, but didn't you just do what I asked about earlier? Uh, didn't you just sort of say it was it was a Russian special thought, but you actually don't know that. You just kind of think that. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yes. Okay. That, I, I appreciate the honesty. I, and this isn't, I'm not Fox News in you, I swear to God. I, I just want to, I'm just trying to figure out sometimes though, when we are in the fog of war, it is, it is, like I know that Americans, when when the, the 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 war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq was happening, they just didn't want to believe anything. Actually, Seymour Hersh was the person that broke the Abu Ghraib torture prison scandal, and for the first week, the Bush administration was like, "This is disinformation. This doesn't happen." So it's you know, it, it is. But it's playing upon the way that we Westerners are. For example, when we don't have evidence, we say, well, let's wait for evidence. Let's gather evidence. Let's find out the truth. But what the Russians do is they're fast to claim one thing. So, for example, let's take the uh, uh, chemical attacks in Syria, which were caused by the Assad, re Assad regime, but we didn't couldn't prove it right away. But the Russians immediately said that it was done by the Syrian opposition and the White Helmets, and they had all these kinds of stories and, uh, and so on. So since they get the narrative out there, that is what people start to talk about. Or let's talk about uh, Malaysia Airlines 17, which was shot down by the Russians in 2014. Mm -hmm. Now, after years of investigation, it finds out, finds out that the armed forces of the Russian Federation shot it down. But what did the Russians get out within hours of the event that uh, Ukraine had shot it down. And this was false. So what I see with the, uh, uh, the Nord Stream 2 is the exact same story. Um, we know that the Russians are behind it because they're the only ones who benefit from it and it fits their operations. But it takes us a long time to establish this. And because we are at war, that some of the details may take a very long time to become clear, but we're impatient. And so we grasp at the lies of Russians. We grasp it here. We grasp it about MH17, chemical bombing in Syria and many other cases. That's what Russian misinformation warfare is so good. Okay. Um, I'm just going to push back on that a little bit. And, and, and just because I think it's, it, it's, it's a worthwhile discussion, but this is Joe Biden. I uh, believe this is a week before Russian invaded in February uh, 2022. The diplomacy is the very best way forward for all sides, we both agree, including best for Russia, in our view. And we have made it very clear we're ready to continue talks in good faith with Russia. Germany has also been a leader in pushing de-escalation of tensions and encouraging dialogue with, through the Normandy format. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We will bring an end to it. I mean, <laughs> he said he would bring an end to the Nord Stream two if Russia invades, and then the Nord Stream is dead. I mean, I can see like uh, it, it, it's, the weird thing about conspiracies and when you have a boogeyman is that you're and especially when they are evil as Russia is. It is really easy to just pick up Russia did it. But you have an American president stating, by the way, in front of the German chancellor who was standing five feet to his right, that if Russia invades, we will take out the Nord Stream tube. No, and then, he did not say that. He said we will end it. And what did he mean? He meant the sanctions which the United States had in place 
but which he had by executive order had forestalled. What Biden had been doing at the time was he had been holding back um, legislated sanctions on Gazprom and on some of the directors of Nord Stream. That is what he was referring to, and that is what he had been talking with, with the Germans. Don't forget that Merkel had been doing a special negotiation to get this exception. That is what President Biden was referring to. No one would think he was referring to the sabotage that Russia carried out later. Well, I would love to see the evidence of the Russia. I mean, it was uh, Ian Bremner uh, said that it was Ukraine that did it. But he, he, and he's another person that called uh, 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 Hirsch a, a useful idiot, but then provided no actual evidence that Ukraine did it. I, I just find it, it, it interesting. I think that everyone that has a side sort of just said, well, my side certainly didn't do it. It must have been the other side. And, and that's not a false equivalency either. Uh, it's funny. There's so many landmines anytime you talk about this kind of stuff because I'm not a pom-pom waver. I just know that Russia's the bad guy, but I also know that you know, other things happen during war. And, and if we find out that it was the Americans, um, people that said it was Russia or people that said it was Ukraine or whoever, they just shrug, you know, and move on and don't ever kind of, you know, reconcile the fact that, you know, this changes geopolitically a lot of things. And, um, you know, does that worry you at all? Well, when, when Russia shot down MH17, I said within two hours that Russia shot it down. Eight years afterwards, a Dutch criminal court presented all the evidence that that was true. So why don't we say, let's wait eight years, when, which is the pace at which our systems work. And then we can, we, can, we can demonstrate that Russia carried out this sabotage of Nord Stream 2. Okay. Well, I think we can agree to disagree. I, I trust Seymour Hirsch, and I think he's too savvy to be used as a useful idiot. But that's just, um, Listen, I would love to have you back. We have to go. But um, I thought it was a great conversation. I think... Um, I'm going to do more of a deep dive into the, the kidnapping children because as a father of two, I just think that I can't imagine a more of a nightmare scenario. And, uh, and that story, um, story checks out from top to bottom. And, and I want to thank you for, for educating me and my audience a little bit more on the details of that story. So Mike McKay, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Have a good night. Okay. Um, that was a conversation. I, I liked him. I thought he was very informed. Um, it's interesting just having uh, um, Seymour Hirsch, who I kind of consider to be almost like a hero of mine. <laughs> so to be told that he was uh, being used as a useful idiot was hard to swallow. Is it possible? Of course it is. Um, is it probable? I don't think so. But, um, you know, it's nice to get another view. It's nice to also like get a view from someone where you don't have to be disagreeable just because you disagree. Can you please someone exchange? What the fuck does this mean? Jesus James. First of all, that'd be a great name for a band um jesus james is running on a water stick what does that mean someone explain that to me before we go because I, I need to know what that means um i made an announcement i think uh last week that uh the simpsons guy michael price was going to be on february 13th i got i got the day wrong but i got the month wrong um it's actually march 13th um and I got a guy to make something, and I'm going to show it to you now because I think it's hilarious. I can't wait, by the way. Um, I'm going to see if my son and daughter want to also uh, talk to him or at least ask him um, if there is a, uh, it, it, like, see if there's any question that he can ask. But this is the intro that I made for him, and uh, I think I still have the wrong date on it, but um, I got a guy to make a beat, and I just want to know what you guys think. 
got life shit. I love it. It's really good in headphones. Um, I can't wait to have him on the show. This is going to be like probably, I always say that. This is my favorite. I don't have favorites, I guess, but Seymour Hirsch one today I really like. No Chomsky I really like because it was my first one. And Michael Price, I've already interviewed him for the FS for Family stuff, but to interview him in a context exclusively about The Simpsons is, is I can't tell you how excited I am. I'm super excited. Um. This week, we have a whole bunch of stuff going on, but I don't want to announce it yet. I'll just do same-day announcements because there's a couple of scheduling things that are confirmed, but not quite. We have to rearrange some scheduling here at the network. But um, but I think you'll be pretty excited. Then next week, we're going back to David Wallace and cult stuff. Um, so that should be fun. And uh, my big thanks again to Michael McKay. I really appreciate it. And we will see you next time on Black Bolt. Black Bolt. and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.